Good evening, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Tectonic. My name is Mark Hurst. I'll be your host for the next hour here on WFMU. Freeform Station of the Nation, live from downtown Jersey City in that great state of New Jersey. It's a pleasure to be with you this evening. I want to say thanks to the great Dan Boda for sitting in for me last week. If you didn't hear that episode, go back in the archives at WFMU.org, and you can listen to Dan Boda, host of Vocal Fry, uh, last week hosting Tectonic and talking about tasers mounted on drones installed in classrooms here in America. It hasn't happened yet, but the proposal is out there. And, uh, well, you can hear the whole story from Dan on last week's show. It's (laughs) a perfect topic for Tectonic, where you go, that can't possibly be happening. It can't possibly be that bad. And yet, there is a sheaf of news stories talking about how this company wants to make it a reality. Anyway, so thanks again to Dan for guest hosting. And um, I'm really excited to present all of you with a great interview for this show tonight. I'm speaking with Kashmir Hill, who's a tech reporter at the New York Times, who's just come out with a new book called Your Face Belongs to Us, A Secretive Startup's Quest to End Privacy as We Know It. This book is about facial recognition. Even though the the phrase facial recognition doesn't appear in the title or subtitle, this book talks about facial recognition and specifically about a company that I've covered on the show called Clearview AI, a New York-based company that is, uh, well, you'll hear all about it. It's doing a lot in facial recognition, whether you like it or not, with, with an emphasis on that last phrase. I think it's really important that we, we understand what's happening, whether it's tasers floating around on drones or in classrooms, or if it's about the seemingly inexorable march of facial recognition into every nook and cranny of our daily lives, which I'm, for most of us, I'm pretty sure we're not going to like it, but it's coming. And so it's really important that we pay attention. And it's, uh, it's really impressive, this book, uh, Your Face Belongs to Us by Cash Hill. She has been covering Clearview AI for the New York Times uh, for, for years. In fact, she revealed a lot about the, the company, uh, was the first to reveal a lot about the company out of anybody in the media. And this is the book that really tells the whole story. So I want to I go ahead and play this episode. This episode. I want to play this interview for you. Uh, if you want to join in the live listener comments, go to WFMU.org, click Playlist and Comments, and you can join in the chat there. If you're listening in the future, this is the October 30, 2023 show, and uh, you can find the playlist link at tectonic.fm, T-E-C-H tonic.fm, and you can read the comments and see links to Kashmir's book and Clearview AI on the playlist. Let's go ahead and listen to my interview with Kashmir Hill here on Tectonic on WFMU. Kashmir Hill, welcome to Tectonic. Thanks for having me on. It's great to have you on. I really enjoyed your book, Your Face Belongs to Us, A Secretive Startup's Quest to End Privacy as We Know It. This is a really important book about facial recognition with a focus on a company called Clearview AI, based here in New York, that offers what we might call a search engine for faces. You've written about Clearview as your role as tech reporter for the New York Times, and I've covered your stories over the years here on Tectonic. Maybe we can start with Clearview. What would someone see if they used the Clearview app today? So right now, Clearview AI is limited in use to police departments. But if you were a police officer, if you were to upload a photo of someone's face or a surveillance still of someone's face, you would get a series of results of other places on the internet where that person's face has appeared, or at least what the facial recognition algorithm thinks is the same person, along with links to where those photos are hosted. In this book, you talk about the history of Clearview AI, founded by a guy named Juan Tontat. 
the early activity of this company was scraping the public web for any kinds of photos. The company you write built up several billion photos by starting with Venmo and Tinder, right? Those were the two first services that they scraped. Yeah. So Wonton Tat um, described this. Venmo was one of the first places he went because of how easy it was to get faces from Venmo. And this is interesting to me as a journalist who's been writing about privacy and technology for so long, because I remember all of these privacy advocates criticizing Venmo for making people's accounts you know, public by default, unless you went in and changed your settings when you started sending people payments on Venmo, it was public for the world to see. And Venmo on their uh, their website, Venmo.com, had this little illustration, uh, this graphic of an iPhone, and it showed transactions happening. And it was actual real-time transactions from their network. And so Juan said, you know, I basically just hit this website with a scraper and I would hit it every few seconds and download the photos that were appearing there along with the link to the profile photo. And it was like a slot machine where he was just pulling a lever and faces were spilling out. And so, yeah, he got millions, I think, of faces from Venmo that way. And uh, essentially, you know, did this across the web, was collecting faces and then actually hiring people that he met to kind of hunt faces for him or to bring him databases of faces. And sometimes he said he didn't even know those people's names. Uh, he would pay them in uh, cryptocurrency like Bitcoin or Ether. And yeah, it was, I mean, he was pretty scrappy building this original technology that turned out to be quite powerful. These days, of course, Clearview is drawing on more than just those old Venmo and Tinder photos. People today could find photos coming up from Instagram and Facebook and Twitter. I suppose Snap is in there as well. I saw some coverage of Clearview AI showing a young woman photos that matched her face. And she said, wait a second, that's from my Instagram profile and that was private. And Juan said, well, it was public when this was scraped. And she said, that's right. My, my Instagram profile was public briefly. So people's photos, even if they're just public temporarily on some of these services, can be scraped up into this database. What are the reactions of the other big tech companies these days to a company like Clearview scraping the photos into its own database? Yeah, I just wanted to add, when I first wrote about Clearview AI in January 2020, they had 3 billion faces in their database. They claimed to be adding something like 75 million new images per day. And they currently have, they say, 30 billion faces in the database. And I saw this over time that I was writing about the company. They didn't want to talk to me at first, but eventually they came around. And so I've interviewed Juan Tantat you know, several times and he'll run the search on me and I'll just see new photos kind of come up each time, you know, there's, there's more than a hundred hits on my face. And, uh, in the most recent search, it was Flickr. They'd added all these Flickr photos and there were photos there from New Year's Eve, 2006, I think of me that I didn't realize were on the internet. They were taken by a, friend of my sister's and she had put them publicly on Flickr and yeah, my sister and I didn't realize. So it's, it is really wild kind of the photos that can come up where, you know, I'll be in the background of a photo or I'll be in a crowd at a concert. And uh, Juan Tantat, he said, you know, it's a time machine. We invented it. And it really felt that way sometimes to just see all these places on the internet I am. But um, in terms of how companies reacted to this, I mean, Venmo, Facebook, LinkedIn, you know, these companies were not happy to learn that Clearview AI had scraped their photos. And they all sent Clearview in 2020 cease and desist letters. And they said, hey, you violated our terms of service. You know, we see this as illegal. It's a breach of contract law, you know, a CFAA violation, the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act, which is basically an anti-hacking law. And they said, hey, delete the photos that you scrape from us and stop scraping. But as far as I know, Clearview didn't do anything in response to those letters, and the companies never pursued it further. They didn't sue Clearview. And so this practice continues. 
that would be sort of funny for Facebook to sue a company for surveillance, wouldn't it? We don't like the fact that you're stealing information from us that we didn't mean for you to take. Yeah, I mean, I wonder, I mean, part of it is I don't think these companies maybe wanted to draw more attention to the fact that they had been scraped. Uh, you know, it is unclear if scraping is actually illegal. There's at least one federal suit that says it's not, that this is public information on the internet. And I think these companies maybe were also looking forward, realizing that generative AI was coming and that they would be doing potentially the same thing, you know, scraping lots of information from the internet in order to train, you know, these big learning models. And so I, yeah, I don't know what their motivations were in ignoring what Clearview AI was doing, but they certainly did not push back against the company in a very, you know, strong or effective way. This makes me think about one of the stories you tell about Matthias Marx, who's a PhD student at the University of Hamburg, he did not like the fact that Clearview had scraped his photo. And in German law, there is a prohibition on companies storing your personal data if you want it to be removed. And so Marx went to the Hamburg Data Protection Authority. You write that the Data Protection Authority ordered Clearview to delete Marx's biometric information, which is to say his face. But with Clearview scraping all the time, his face would just get collected again. In other words, even if you do win a lawsuit of some sort to get Clearview to remove your face from their database, if it's out there on an old, like you say, an old um, you know, Flickr photo or you're in a crowd that someone took a photo of publicly, it's just going to get scraped again by Clearview's algorithm. That was really chilling, as was the last thing you said about Matthias Marx was that he had to give Clearview permission to use his face in order to keep it out of the database. I mean, it's sort of a catch-22. In order for us not to have your face, you have to give us your face so that we can tell when we scrape your face. And in the meantime, we're going to hold on to your face. There's no way to escape this. Yeah. I mean, Mark said, you know, essentially this is a paradox, right? He doesn't want this company to have his information. And they're saying, in order for us not to have your information, we need to keep your information on file. And so he said, you know, this is clearly a company that cannot exist within European privacy laws. They need to be put out of business. And, you know, this is a, a right granted to people who live in Europe. They have the GDPR, this very strong privacy law. And it says that companies can't collect sensitive information about them without their consent. And so when I did expose the existence of Clearview AI, privacy regulators in Europe, also in Canada and Australia, looked at the company, investigated and said, hey, what you're doing is illegal. Under our privacy regimes, you can't just put people's sensitive information, you know, their face prints in a big database without their consent. And they said that, Kind of, kind of like Facebook and LinkedIn and the others, they said, you need to delete our citizens. And they kicked Clearview out of their countries and Clearview stopped working with law enforcement in those places. Um, you know, so far they have not been effective at getting the their citizens deleted. And for a while, Clearview AI was complying with deletion request from Europe. You could go to Clearview and say, hey, get me out like Matthias Marx did. Uh, but actually, I recently discovered that they've stopped doing that. They're not complying with GDPR anymore. They said, we were for a while, but now we're not. And this is one of those examples of how hard privacy regulations are in our kind of our global environment. You have this company based in the US and they've just decided, hey, we're just not going to follow European privacy law. Um, they have been fined by regulators there, and just recently they are able to overturn a fine from the British privacy regulator. Clearview had appealed it to a higher court, and the higher court said, yes, what Clearview did is illegal under our law, um, but they're only working with law enforcement. And you, as the privacy regulator in the UK, don't have the right to regulate what other governments do with our citizens' data. So the fact that Clearview has has decided to only work with law enforcement 
um, which is kind of, I, I tell this history of how that happened. It wasn't their initial idea, but that's been a kind of get out of jail free card for them. Um, because essentially, you know, we, we basically like let the government kind of use information in a different way than we let companies. And so they keep using this as their defense when they get sued, when they get investigated. And it has been a, a kind of a powerful defense for them so far. There's something else that you write about that Clearview has used as a legal shield. There are regulations on the books that prevent government agencies from surveilling citizens in in certain ways. But if the agencies work with a corporation, then those regulations don't apply. Here's what you write. Clearview is part of a trend of private vendors selling law enforcement agencies the fruit of surveillance methods that would likely be unconstitutional if deployed by the government itself. And so we have, as you say, centuries-old rights protecting American citizens from government abuses growing increasingly irrelevant as private companies take over the work of surveilling the country's inhabitants. So here we have Clearview AI as a company oh, we're just a company. We're, we're not a government agency. So we, we're not beholden to all of those regulations. But guess who they work with? Police departments, the FBI, and, and other government agencies. Yeah, Clearview actually just re-upped their contract with the Department of Homeland Security. Yeah, I mean, this isn't just Clearview AI. This is other kind of private surveillance vendors. So we're seeing this in the area of um, location tracking, that there is this big private industry that has sprung up around this, you know, essentially companies that piggyback on advertising networks on your phone. So your apps are bleeding kind of uh, where your phone is going. And there's these companies that put that into a database and they track, you know, where this phone has been and its patterns to sell it to, it used to be to advertisers um, to kind of like know more about this person, know how to target them with the right ads. But now we're seeing governments start to buy that data. And so they don't have to put GPS trackers on all of our cars or trail us with individual officers they can just buy it from this company. All they need is a subscription or some kind of payment. And this is definitely the kind of activity that would usually require a warrant. And so it's interesting. I mean, I've been hearing this from government officials for a while now that it used to be the government that knew everything about us, but now it's these private tech companies. And increasingly, you know, the government is basically going to the tech companies and saying, tell us you know, give us the information, help us to help us keep people safe. It's a real turnabout. And it means that these protections, we have these privacy protections that come from, you know, the Constitution, the Bill of Rights, they were all developed to apply to the government, not to private corporations. And it's really, it's really uh, rebalancing kind of our privacy rights. One of the themes that I came away with from this book is the missed opportunities that we had to rein some of this in at various moments. And one of them was in 2013. It was Senator Al Franken, I think, was closing in on a privacy bill. We still have no, even today, 2023, we still have no privacy bill that protects the privacy of American citizens. So Franken is really interested. He's made this a a primary uh, focus. And then in 2013, the news breaks that there is a giant leak of data from someone named Edward Snowden that changes everything. As you write, the Snowden leaks turned lawmakers' attention back to government incursions on privacy rather than the corporate variety. So as Franken was closing in on big tech surveillance like Google and Facebook and and other companies, suddenly the attention was drawn away from Silicon Valley and that gave an opportunity for more corporate surveillance, the kind of which we see now from Clearview. Yeah, I mean, this this is a question, I think, for everyone. I mean, basically, what are you, when it comes to your privacy, what are you more worried about? Are you worried about the government spying on you or corporations spying on you. That was kind of the dichotomy for a long time. And increasingly it's both and they're working together. 
And so Franken was really worried at the time, you know, a decade ago, he was worried about location tracking and he was worried about facial recognition. And he was really looking at the practices of cell phone providers and companies like Google and Facebook and Apple, what kind of records were they keeping of people's movements? What kind of practices were they bringing to facial recognition? You know, they were starting to kind of roll it out softly, using it to unlock smartphones, using it to tag friends in photos. And he was pretty alarmed about it. And he said, you know, my my worry is we just don't have any privacy laws that apply to this. We have the Fourth Amendment, you know, to protect us from government spying. We have public records laws that allow us to get data about surveillance from the government. But when it comes to companies, it's kind of a black box. We only know as much as you tell us. And yeah, and it really, they had some momentum on privacy bills. It is it is so hard, honestly, it seems to get any law passed at the, the federal level. And yeah, Snowden distracted and then industry kind of lined up against any of these privacy laws because it does make their job more more difficult when they have to comply with regulation. And so it never happened. But what we have seen is privacy laws passed at the state level. And one of the ones I focus on in the book, because I think it is such an astounding law, one of the rare times the law has moved faster than the technology, is the Biometric Information Privacy Act, or BIPA which was passed in Illinois in 2008. This is a law that says you have to get, if you're a company, you need to get consent from people before you use their biometrics. If you want to use their face print or their fingerprints or their voice print, you need affirmative consent. You need a plan. You have to tell them how you're going to use it. And you have to have a plan to delete it. And this has been a really powerful law. It has been expensive for companies that have violated it. Facebook paid a $650 million settlement for just rolling out facial recognition technology on Facebook to identify friends and photos. My favorite example is Madison Square Garden, the events venue in New York that installed facial recognition technology a few years ago to address security threats. We have seen surveillance creep there uh, or function creep where they had the surveillance infrastructure in place and started to think about other ways they could use it. The billionaire owner, James Dolan, who's kind of known for, for being irascible, yeah, being quite a character, he said, man, you know who I don't like letting into my venues? Lawyers who work for firms that have sued me. And so they scraped the websites of the 90 or so law firms that had lawsuits against Madison Square Garden or any of its companies and put thousands of lawyers on a ban list. So when they try to get into a Knicks game or Rangers game, Mariah Carey concert or Rockettes show, uh, they get turned away at the door. And I've actually seen this happen. It's incredible how quickly they identify somebody. And people got pretty upset about this because this really opens up this new possible era of discrimination where you can discriminate against people based on where they work, what they do, who they work for, reviews they've written online, their political beliefs. I mean, there's all kinds of different ways a company might discriminate against you. But where they can't do this is at their theater in Chicago because it's in Illinois, BIPA applies, and it means they can't use lawyers' biometric information, their faces, against them without their consent. And we're back. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to Tectonic on WFMU. My name is Mark Hurst. I'm your host. We are halfway through my interview with Kashmir, Kashmir Hill, New York Times tech reporter, who has a new book out called Your Face Belongs to Us. This is a book about facial recognition. And as you just heard, there's a focus in the book on a company called Clearview AI, that has a very powerful system that's being used by law enforcement. Uh, the future, we're going to get into the future, <laughs> what this all means. But you are hearing that there are some bright spots. If you live in Illinois, congratulations, you are protected by BIPA. Uh, I wish there were other states that would do something like this. But let's go ahead and uh, return to our interview with Kashmir Hill here on Tectonic on WFMU.
I love that story of BIPA. I appreciated that. And you did write in the BIPA case study that this was an example of the law moving faster than tech rather than the other way around. I put in my notes, that really puts the lie to Silicon Valley's claim that we hear all the time that, well, technology is moving so fast, the, the law can't keep up. And so these regulations, they're dusty old concepts that we don't need to, to worry about. That's actually not true. You show repeatedly in this book that there is good thinking and perfectly good legal structures to regulate even a fast-moving technology like facial recognition. And in Illinois' case, it actually worked. On the federal level, as you say, it hasn't worked yet, but there were time, there were moments when it looked like it might actually pass. On the federal level, to me, it, it seems, reading this book, that the reason we never got it done in Congress is, again, not because the technology was moving too fast, but because the lobbyists were a little too active. And the interplay of money and uh, regulatory action, unfortunately, is often the deciding factor, it sounds like. Silicon Valley, speaking of their attitude towards the law, this, the somewhat condescending attitude they have toward regulation, there were a number of moments in the book where there are people from the tech industry who are quoted saying, don't worry about this, basically giving their rationalization for why we, the people affected by all of this, should not worry about facial recognition. One of the patterns that I detected in, in the responses from the tech industry is, don't worry, we're only using facial recognition for innocuous reasons. Um, like Facebook, when it first rolled it out, and they've since pulled it back, but it was, oh, just tag your friends and tell us, tell us which friend is in this photo. It's just for fun. It's just for connecting people. But inevitably, despite their assurances that they're only going to use it for these small things, the creep of this technology eventually turns it into something that is far more powerful than they originally let on. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that Facebook and Google are really interesting here because they did do so much to pioneer and normalize this technology to get us used to it. Apple too, I mean, everyone opening their iPhones with their face makes you kind of get used to facial recognition technology, even though that's different. That's kind of a one-to-one -one match, which I I think is very different from one-to-end where it's searching a database and, and trying to figure out who a person is, kind of strip them of their anonymity. But yeah, I mean, these companies did work to make it more powerful. They talked about the research they were doing. I mean, kind of similar to generative AI, where they put out the tools that allowed other actors to eventually get their hands on really powerful technologies from Clearview AI to OpenAI. That said, Google and Facebook did, as I discovered when I was doing the reporting for the book, actually hold this technology back in a way. Both Google and Facebook had developed Clearview AI-like capabilities internally, and it was the rare technology that they saw as too intrusive to release. Eric Schmidt, then chairman of Google, said in 2011 that it was the one technology that Google had developed and decided not to release. I, I think that would be revised now and, and, and kind of generative AI tools would also be in that category. But he said, you know, it could be used in positive ways, but in the hands of an evil dictator, it could be used in very bad ways. And, and it's easy to imagine, you know, using it to suppress dissent, using it to track your political opposition, using it in, in very chilling ways that, that affect our, our speech and our kind of freedom of a movement and association. And Facebook, same thing. They, they actually wrote in the book, I watched this video of engineers there in a conference room at Menlo Park one of them wearing a baseball cap with a, a phone st strapped to the brim, held in place by rubber bands. And when he looked around the room, it would call out the names of the people that he looked at. And, you know, these are companies that are not necessarily known for being conservative when it comes to new forms of data collection and analysis. I mean, Google's the company that sent uh, cars out around the world to take photos of our homes and put it on the internet with Google Street View. Um, but yeah, they they did draw the line with this tech. And 
whether intentional or not, they bought up the startups that were kind of approaching Clearview AI's capability back in 2010, 2011, and, and took their services private. And so they did hold back this kind of power from getting out there. But eventually you had a Clearview AI come along that, you know, the people behind Clearview AI are not, I would not call them, you know, geniuses or technological masterminds. Juan Tontat, the co-founder, the technical co-founder before building Clearview AI, he was making Facebook quizzes and iPhone games and an app called Trump Hair for putting, you know, the ex-president's hair on, on people in photos. Um, he was able to build this because these powerful AI technologies are increasingly open source and off the shelf. And so it's lowered the barrier of entry and you can have a small, you know, this very small non-traditional startup make this radical technology. And I just think we're going to see that across other categories of AI, not just with facial recognition, but with generative AI, with voice recognition, maybe even with DNA databases. And I, I think that is going to be very difficult for us given the lack of laws or regulations or policies. Yeah, I mean, what Clearview did was a ethical breakthrough, not a technological breakthrough. And we are going to see other companies crossing those same lines that are in the sand right now. Maybe we all need to move to Illinois. <laughs> or, you know, or more, you know, we could see more states pass laws like BIPA that give us a little bit more control. Um, yeah, it's it's interesting. We have two different approaches. In Europe, they say you can't put somebody in a database without their consent. In the U.S., in the few states where we've started to get privacy laws like California or Connecticut or Virginia, Colorado, they say, okay, well, if you're in a database, you have the right to get out of it. And so if you live in one of those states, you can go to Clearview and say, hey, I want to see what you have on me and I want you to delete me. But opt-out laws just don't work as well. California has 34 million people. Companies are required to report how many of these requests they get. Clearview AI in the last two years has heard from fewer than a thousand people in California who want to be deleted from their database. And why is that? Do you think people just don't know that they have the option to make that request? I mean, I think people are busy. They maybe don't know this exists or they don't know how it would actually hurt them to be in Clearview AI's database or, yeah, they just don't have the time to do it. I, this is why defaults are so powerful because most people will just accept the default because they assume, oh, it must be that way for a reason or they just don't have the time or ability to kind of research it and, and make a different decision. What would you say, Kashmir, to someone who's wondering why Clearview AI and other facial rec systems are a threat? I mean, if they say, look, it has not been declared illegal. I don't live in Illinois or one of the other states, so I'm going to be subject to it anyway. And if they're giving me a way to, or if they're giving the police a way to catch the bad guys, that's probably good. And if I did have an app that allowed me to identify people at a cocktail party, let's say, and I could remember their names, why is that bad? How do you have the conversation with people who are wondering about the importance of privacy? Yeah, I mean, so I see the benefits of this technology, right? Being able to solve crimes, to identify criminal suspects, I get that. And I, I've talked to many police officers who have used Clearview AI to develop leads. That said, I think there's constitutional questions around how big these databases should be. Should police who are trying to solve a shoplifting crime in New Orleans be searching a database of 30 billion faces. That includes probably you, me, and most of the people that are listening to this radio show. That can lead to bad outcomes. That actually happened. New Orleans, uh, police officers around New Orleans were trying to solve string of crimes, people buying designer purses at consignment stores with stolen credit cards. And they ran a Clearview AI hit on a surveillance tape, matched it to a guy in Georgia. They looked up his Facebook profile. He had a lot of friends in New Orleans. They ended up sending a warrant to Georgia with a request for extradition for this guy, Randall Quran Reed. He gets arrested the day after Thanksgiving. 
he asked, you know, why are you arresting me? And they said, you're wanted for larceny in Jefferson Parish. He said, where's Jefferson Parish? <laughs> they said, it's in Louisiana. He says, I've never been to Louisiana before. Like, what is this about? He's held in jail for a week awaiting extradition. He has to hire lawyers in Georgia and in Louisiana. Finally, yet he had a good lawyer in Louisiana who was able to get a detective to tell him how they'd identified Reed and that it was with facial recognition. And they ended up sending photos and a video of his face to the detectives. And they noticed that he had a mole that the suspect didn't. And then they let him go. But, you know, this is so traumatic. And so one, you know, facial recognition can be can go wrong. And so if we are letting police use it, we really, again, need guardrails. We need to make sure it's using appropriately. We need to answer these questions. How big should the databases be? Uh, what crimes do we want to use this for, et cetera? So even if you say, okay, that's a good use, there's still there still need to be rules there so that people aren't arrested for the crime of looking like someone else. And then, yeah, these other questions about who do we want to have access to this? When I talk to people about why they should be concerned about this, as I say, hey, have you ever had a sensitive conversation at dinner, you know, where you were able to have that conversation because you trusted that the people around you didn't know who you were? There are so many situations in our day-to-day lives that we rely on anonymity for, you know, you go to the grocery store wearing, you know, your pajamas and you kind of like can do that because you assume no one knows who I am. Like maybe I'll run into somebody I know, but this isn't going to kind of trail me for the rest of my life. You have a sense of conversation over dinner, but what if somebody has an app like this on their phone and they hear you talking about something that sounds kind of interesting or kind of spicy and they wonder, who are you? And then they run this search on your face. All of a sudden, they know your name. They know who you work for. Maybe they think what you just said was pretty radical or pretty extreme or or pretty juicy. And they, you know, publicize it. Uh, They put it out on the internet. And you could just imagine all these times, you know, you're going to the pharmacy, you're buying something sensitive. What if there's some like troll in there who sees you buy hemorrhoid cream and they think, ha ha, and they just take a picture of you, you know, tag you in it and put it on Twitter. You know, if you're getting sensitive health services, you're walking out of a planned parenthood and there's a protester outside, they take a photo of you and now they know who you are. And there's just all of these moments where... I think that we need privacy. We need anonymity just to feel kind of comfortable and free as we move through our daily lives. And if we live in a world where we are constantly being tracked or are constantly identifiable, I think we'll find it pretty chilling pretty quickly. And that brings us to the last story you tell in the book, which is one final meeting that you had with Juan Tontat in which he is giving you the demo of Clearview AI on a new rig, not on a smartphone, but on augmented reality glasses. Yeah, so Clearview AI has developed this app that works with augmented reality glasses from a New York company called Vuzix. And I actually got to try these glasses out. So Juan... um, let me, it was in his spokesperson's apartment. And so I put on the glasses. I look at Juan, a little kind of circle appears around his face. I tap something on the side of the glasses and it pulls up all these photos of him along with the captions from the website. So very quickly, I know this is Juan Tontat. I know he's the CEO of Clearview. Then I looked at his spokeswoman who's a crisis communications consultant that they hired after I started looking into Clearview. Uh, You know, she (laughs) is kind of a professional. She's who Elliot Spitzer hired when he was having his troubles. And so I look at her and same thing, circle around her face. I click the button and then I start seeing photos of her from around the internet. One is, you know, from her niece's kind of engagement party, but then there's a photo of her with a very famous person. And I said, Hey, there's a photo of you here with this person. And she said, Oh, please don't mention that, you know, in your story, in your book, because it's, that's a client of mine and it's not public that this person was a client of mine. And this was just so striking for me because this is a person who's been hired to promote this technology. And I, wearing the glasses for two minutes, 
violated her privacy. I discovered something about her that she didn't want the world to know. And I think this is an aspect of how a tool like this works that some people don't think about. They just think, oh, it's just going to identify me. But it's not just that it's kind of revealing information about you that's known from the internet. It may reveal photos of you on the internet that you don't know about, that you don't want exposed, whether these are you at a concert with somebody you didn't want the world to know you went to a concert with, or if you've ever done online sex work and you have profiles out there that are anonymous, but they feature your face. There's just all these things that might come up that might surprise people. But Clearview has actually had funding from the U.S. Air Force to work on a prototype of these glasses, the idea being that soldiers could wear them at military bases. But you could also, you know, absolutely imagine this as a consumer product where we could all walk around. And as long as you didn't live in Illinois, you know, look at people and potentially identify them in real time. If we don't do something about this technology, which I, I really, I hope that we do. I really hope we put up guardrails so that we can have not have our faces just used without our consent, um, where we can choose how public or known we want to be. I read that last story at the end of this book that is really telling the story of this inexorable growth and spread of this privacy-destroying technology. It was hard for me to come to any other conclusion than this is where we're headed, just this idea that your experience with these glasses is a vision of the dystopian surveillance hellscape that we could all be living in within just a few years. And once we're there, I'm not even sure how we could put that toothpaste back in the tube. Are you scared for where this is all headed? I am alarmed by the track we are on right now where we don't do anything about this and where we let the technology and what it's capable of determine what our future looks like. To the extent that past is prologue, I mean, we have constrained technologies in the past. Uh, and I, I talk about this in the book. Um, I talk about another book called The Listeners by Brian Hawkman. And it was about another time in our history where there was a technology that was developed that was quite alarming. And that was, um, and that was small bugs and wiretapping equipment. And this is, you know, in the, the, the 1950s, 1960s. And people were worried about every conversation they are having possibly being listened to, possibly being recorded. And this was happening. I mean, in the White House, we hear these conversations all the time that Nixon was having because he had, you know, tiny recording devices there that was record that were recording every conversation. But he they had. wanted those. He wanted those, but the people in the room didn't. The right. people who were talking with him didn't realize <laughs> they were being recorded. And there was this real fear in society and people did not like it. They said, we need to have privacy in our conversations. And we passed laws, you know, that regulated this, that made it illegal to secretly record people, that the government needed to get warrants, you know, to do wiretaps. And so we did constrain the technology. And I talked to this great surveillance historian at the ACLU, Jay Stanley. And he said, you know, these laws are the reason why the surveillance cameras that are all over the country only record our images and not our conversations. You no know, kidding. we create, yeah, like we created a zone of privacy with laws and we can do that. And so I, I do think and hope that the same thing happens around facial recognition technology, because I, I do think that that kind of anonymity in our daily lives is important. Well, I really want to compliment you for doing the research and writing this book. It is so well written, Kashmir. This, this book reads like butter. So as you're describing this history that is so alarming and depressing at various moments. <laughs> it's actually a very pleasurable read. The story moves from page to page as we slide ever further into the dystopia. How has the reaction been to the book so far? I think people have been very surprised to find out how little legal framework there is for this. And I have, uh, I've definitely been hearing from people who are upset about the fact that 
the privacy of their face depends on where they live and that some people in some states are able to get out of Clearview's database and they can't or that people in Illinois have these greater protections. Um, and so I, I hope at the very least that the book is a wake up call about that. And, and I think people have been saying, hey, I'm going to post fewer photos on the public internet. Uh, I don't want to be, you know, scraped up by Clearview AI. But I do think that these technologies are coming for other information about us, you know, voice search. The technology companies claim they can do gate analysis. How people walk. How people walk. Clearview AI is developing a background search tool so that you could look at the background of a photo and figure out where in the world it was taken. Again, good for police investigations, but I think about that tool in the hand of the hands of the general public and being able to figure out when you see a photo, you know, on social media or on Instagram that you can figure out exactly where it was taken. Again, something that would potentially be misused. So yeah, so I, I, I do hope that's a wake up call and I hope it kind of returns us to the conversation about privacy. I think there's a lot of talk about generative AI right now and the possibility for misinformation and disinformation and job loss. And I do hope we continue to think about privacy because so many of the questions are the same. You know, this is about scraping data from the public internet, using information in ways that we didn't expect, perhaps didn't want. And this question of like, who has the right to use all of this data? The book is called Your Face Belongs to Us, A Secretive Startup's Quest to End Privacy as We Know It. Strong recommendation for this one for all Tectonic listeners. It's written by my guest today, Kashmir Hill. Kash, thanks so much for being on the show today. Thank you so much for having me on. This is a great conversation. back. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to Tectonic on WFMU. My name is Mark Hurst. I'll be your host for the remaining 10 minutes and change. And uh, then we will continue. I want to say something about the October fundraiser here in just a moment. But um, First, I want to say thank you to Kashmir, Kashmir Hill, author of the new book, Your Face Belongs to Us, for joining me on Tectonic. Are you scared? I mean, I, I, let me just, <laughs> I mean, how do, you, how do you come back? How do you come back from this? That's why I'm a little bit, I'm tripping over my words here, because the reality, the, the possible, maybe even likely future that she is revealing to us in this book is so messed up. I, I don't even know. I'm trying to say, you know, you, you can only be, oh, this is nice, you know, okay, and the next week we're going to talk about, no, can we just stop for a second? This is nuts. This is absolutely nuts. We have no privacy privacy law in this country. There are some states, yes, as she said, Illinois, some other uh, states are working on these. But, in, but broadly, federally, in the U.S., we have no privacy law. So we have no protection nationally against what is about to happen here. Let me just paint a picture for you, okay? And this is this you know this what what Cash was talking about in this book. Pretty soon, if if nothing, if there's no regulatory action. The technology continues to advance and advance. Here's what happens. Whenever you enter a restaurant or a party or a subway car or a medical facility or a church or a public park or anywhere else, anyone around you wearing surveillance glasses will, at the tap of a button, be able to see all of your public photos posted now or any time in the past on the Internet. That's websites, that's social media, that's anything that has any photos that could have a photo that contains you, your face. I don't mean just a selfie. I mean, did you ever appear on any photo anywhere on anyone's camera? You come up, okay? And then it identifies everybody you're with. And each of those people has a link so they can, the, the person with the surveillance glasses can then just tap that person and find out who they are. But it's not just finding out who you are and who your friends are. They can then follow those links to your profile and read your background. 
and learn about anything else in the dossier that the service has put together. What's your political leanings? Where do you go? Who do you congregate with? What are your habits? Where do you live? What's your phone number? Who are your family members? Do you want all of that out there? Do you want all of that out there for any stranger to be able to pull up at any moment for the rest of your life? Do you want this to be our society? Just answer me that. If you don't, we have to do something about this. This is not a joke. So I would recommend that you take a look at this book, Your Face Belongs to Us by Cash Hill. This is an incredibly important topic that's real right now. And if we don't stop this right now, that future is going to come true. I mean, yeah, it's kind of a, it's a light and friendly conversation that Cash and I are having, but this is deadly serious. I don't have anything to hide. Don't give me that. I'm just about out of time. Boy, do I have a rant ready to go. But I got to make room for Dave Mandel and his great show. It's complicated, his prog rock show. I've just got a couple of minutes left, and then I want to play an outro specially selected for this evening. Uh, listen, friends, we're, we're right in the last 24 or so hours of this October fundraiser that WFMU does every year. It's called the Hellraiser. Uh, this being the last day or two, this right now is my last pitch from Tectonic for you to give to this station. So this is my last fundraising pitch I'm going to give until the marathon in the spring. And all I can say is right now, after a, almost an entire month, uh, Tectonic is at 45% of the goal. And I really want to say thank you, first of all, to everybody who gave. People are writing in these incredibly nice and generous notes in the note to a DJ field. I really appreciate those. And there's a bunch of other people who are Swag for Life donors who are giving month after month. And uh, I, I just thank you to everybody who's given in whatever way. And to those who are under some financial pressure now and just can't give, I just appreciate you listening. I appreciate your attention. So thanks and gratitude all over. But I just want to make a pitch to people who have a few extra dollars and have not yet pledged. Now's the time to do it because this show, this interview with Cash Hill, I'm able to do because this station exists. If this station isn't here, where am I going to go? Where, what, what radio station is going to allow me on the air? to say these things, to try to tell you the absolute truth as best I can about what the most powerful companies in the history of the world are doing to you, your family, and your community. There's no other radio station that's going to let me on. You know why? Because every five seconds they're saying, be sure to listen on our Amazon surveillance device. Be sure, oh, thanks to Google, oh, go check our Facebook page. That's what other radio stations do, not this one, though. This one, thank God, allows me to say what I think is the truth because there are no big tech sponsors, no sponsors of any type. So if you, if you value this show, please, if you have a few extra dollars and you have not pledged, I want you to go right now to WFMU.org, click the pledge widget, and put in 10 bucks. It doesn't have to be a lot. Put in 10 bucks. Put in 20 if you are a bajillionaire, you've done quite well from technology, and you're feeling a little uncomfortable about these truths that I'm, that I'm laying on you week after week, you can go ahead and put in a thousand bucks. That's my ask. And it has happened in, in past years for the October Hellraiser. Uh, someone who is a little better off puts in a thousand bucks onto Tectonic. And that goes to the station. You know, it's, it's, it, it, it credits Tectonic, but it's not for Tectonic. It's for WFMU. And so whether you're putting 10 bucks or you're putting in 1000 bucks, I want to see one zero something, okay? Go to WFMU.org and, and click that pledge. How, how can we still be at 45% after a month? I, I, don't, I don't understand, friends. This is really important stuff, and this station has to survive so that this message can continue to get, to, to get out. Because, again, I don't know where else I would go to tell you these things. Okay, go to WFMU.org, click the pledge widget, and put in, put in your pledge, even if it's, a, if, if it's a little bit. Every little bit helps, and, and I appreciate all of it. So thank you. That's my pitch. That's my last pitch of the last show for the Hellraiser for this month. And thank you very much to everyone who did 
chip in a little bit, uh, either this month or month to month for, for Swag for Life. Thanks to everybody. Uh, I want to I make way for Dave Mandel, as I said. Um, before I do, I want to tell you what the outro is. When I heard the name of Cash's book, Your Face Belongs to Us, I had a thought, and this, if you've been around the internet long enough, you might have had the same thought, which is that title sounds very similar to an old internet meme. <laughs> uh, your face belongs to us. And yes, I asked Kashmir, does it, did, you, did you have the old internet meme in mind? And she said, yes. She confirmed yes. So I'm going to play that old internet meme for you as my outro. The internet veterans will appreciate it. Uh, you are listening to the greatest radio station in the world, WFMU East Orange, WMFU Mount Hope in New York City and Rockland County at 91.9 FM and online at WFMU.org. Until next time, friends, you know exactly what to do. Avoid Apple, abandon Amazon, forget Facebook, and whatever you do, get off Google. Stay tuned for Dave Mandel. What happened? Someone set up Octobot. We get signal. What? Main screen turn on. It's you. How are you, gentlemen? All your base are belong to us. You are on the way to destruction. What you say? You have no chance to survive make your time. <laughs> All your base, your base, base, base. All your base, serve to on to us. All your base, your base, base, base. All your base, serve to on to us. All your base, your base. Welcome to another exciting episode of It's Complicated, an hour of Prague and Prague adjacent music. I'm your host every week at this time, Dave Mandel. Thank you very much for being here. Great to see you all, always. And we are a playlist, online playlist. Um, we're going to start the show. I, I'm, I'm kind of, I generally don't participate in holiday stuff just because because I'm just no fun generally you know but I'm gonna I figured for Halloween which is tomorrow I figured I'd play 
it was a perfect opportunity for me to play the scariest prog song ever recorded. It is absolutely terrifying. And I'm going to start the show with that right now. It's a song by the Art Bears. It's in nine-eighths time, if you're keeping score. And uh, I think it's pretty frightening. Here it is. Ah, yes, the Art Bears, Chris Cutler, Fred, Fred Frith, and Dagmar Krauss, unmistakably, on the vocals. Just when you think, just when you think it's over, it comes back for another minute or so. Masterpiece, a a masterpiece of terror. Rats and monkeys from Art Bears. It appeared, I guess, on their album Winter Songs, but also was a single. Can you imagine? Can you imagine some poor kid stepping into a record shop in 1979 and saying, this looks like an interesting single? No. Don't touch it. We're going to hear something uh, a little more, a little less frenzied now. We're going to go to Canada, French Canada, Montreal, Canada specifically. We're going to hear something from a group called Rouge Ciel, which even I can tell you means Red Sky. It's a track from a 2010 release called Bryology, and this piece will be, this will be a piece called Imbroglio from the group Rouge Ciel. <laughs> 